Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode will be a conversation with Lynn Kohick. Lynn Kohick is the provost at Denver Seminary. She uh, formerly was a professor at Wheaton College and has written a number of books, including uh, commentaries on Ephesians and Philippians, written a couple of books on women in the early church that we'll talk about in this episode. And she is just one of the premier New Testament scholars in the world. She's fantastic. She's super helpful on all kinds of different topics. But today we're going to focus particularly on how men in the church and men in the academy can interact better with their female colleagues. You know, men uh, in the church and in the academy, especially on the complementarian side of the ledger, have a hard time figuring out what to do with women sometimes. They want to uh, help women have leadership positions in the church at some form. They want them to have some type of influence in the church, but oftentimes they're scared of doing that, scared of what it looks like. Sometimes they don't want to help women flourish in the church at all, but that's pretty rare. Typically, I think it really comes down to just not knowing really what to do, where the lines are. If you think women shouldn't be pastors, you're not really sure what to do otherwise. Uh, but Lynn has some good perspectives on how we can think about that, how we can even talk in the church, even in churches where um, women are not uh, allowed to be pastors or uh, the church believes that that is not a uh, an office that they can have. But the great thing is that Lynn, even though she's an egalitarian, she is very thoughtful and very kind and very considerate toward the other position. And so either way, whether you're a complementarian or an egalitarian listening to this, I hope that you'll be encouraged by her tips and her thoughts. Uh, she also talks about just what it's like being a woman in scholarship, some of the awful, just terrible and sometimes cringeworthy and sometimes just flat out funny ways that men have interacted with her in, at ETS and in the academy and in churches and other places. And again, like I said, I just want this to be a conversation that will help people better understand how they can help women flourish in the church, regardless of where they fall on the theological ledger. This episode is sponsored by BH Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to see their latest offerings and their catalog. We're also presented by the Christian Standard Bible, csbible.com. And No Big Deal is going to take us to our conversation with Lynn Kohick. have Lynn Kohick on the line. Lynn, thanks for jumping on with me today. Oh, you're quite welcome, Brandon. It's uh, nice to chat with you. Uh, you know, we were doing mic check beforehand and we were having a hard time getting your voice uh, to come through loud enough. And you said that you uh, are used to hearing that. Well, yeah, I think one, one of the interesting things of uh, being a female scholar um, in often in a group of only men is that my voice registers a little bit higher uh, and and sometimes a little bit softer than the men. And what's uh, interesting to me uh, is how how that sometimes is perceived. I was at a lunch table uh, years ago uh, with just some of my uh, male colleagues, and um, uh, one of one of them began to tell a story about when they were just starting out in their career, and there was one of their heroes uh, in their discipline. It, it wasn't biblical studies. Uh, their discipline wasn't biblical studies, but they were uh, wanting to introduce themselves to this person. And so as my colleague was telling the story, he said, and so I went up and I talked to him and, and I said, hi, my name is so-and-so. Oh, no. Yeah, it was really interesting. And I thought, you know, I, I am actually sitting right beside you. <laughs> and and then he went on and he, so he 
you know, talked in his regular normal voice, the lower voice, you know, and proceeded to imitate this hero of his. And then he said, and then I responded, well, thank you so much. And, and it occurred to me then that uh, it wouldn't even be so much what I might say, but the fact that my voice is naturally an octave higher or whatever, mm-hmm. that would suggest uh, an immaturity or uh, a, a junior kind of status or just something to be interrupted, which, you know, of course, studies have shown that it's often women are interrupted or talked over more than men. And it may just uh, in part be that we're, we associate a deeper voice with uh, more authority. Um, you know, I don't know. So it was kind of funny as we're checking, Lynn, can you talk a little bit louder? And I think, <laughs> well, yeah, I think I can, you know, I can uh, uh, crank up the volume a little bit. I have to think about, about doing that. Um, anyway, so it just brought to mind uh, that story of how um, uh, the women sometimes feel like they have to talk louder just, uh, just to be heard. Well, I will. Uh, uh, we're going to get to some tips on how to interact with women in the church and in scholarship. And there's tip number one: don't do a stereotypical female voice in front of a female making fun of it. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think that would be uh, a, a good tip. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Lynn, can you talk through a little bit just um, how you became a Christian, what your upbringing was like uh, in relation to the church, and then how you kind of your journey into scholarship through your PhD program, and just sort of how you got to where you are today? Sure. Sure. Well, when I was in high school, um, uh, we started going to um, a, actually, let me back up. When I was in junior high, my mom and I attended a United Methodist church. That's how I was raised, United Methodist. And the pastor and the youth director there both were born again believers and really preached the gospel. And that's where I heard, without maybe all the evangelical lingo, but that's where I heard the gospel. But then the church decided it not to continue to employ those two men. And so my mom and I went to an evangelical free church. And during that first year that I was there and in the youth group, that's when the gospel was really presented to me very clearly. And and so I made a profession of faith and then continued in the evangelical free church for a long time through my college and early adult years. Um, and when I graduated from college, I went to... Um, Christian college, and I, I had a um, bachelor degree in religious studies. I thought, you know, what I really would love to do is teach. I've always loved to teach. And in fact, I flirted with being an elementary school teacher until, quite honestly, I worked with kids <laughs> and I realized <laughs> I do not have the skill set here. Um, and so, but I, I thought, well, what if I taught in, in college, right? So I'll get my PhD and do that. Um, and so I was all set to go to seminary, the same seminary that my Efree uh, pastor had gone to. And uh, the church actually said they would not sign a letter of recommendation for me to go and study uh, if I went to study Bible. They would sign it if I went to study church history or Christian education, but mm. not to study the Bible. So I thought, okay, well, what I really want to do is teach at, at a college. I don't necessarily need a seminary degree. So I just went straight from undergrad to um, uh, University of Pennsylvania um, in Philadelphia. And that's where I uh, did my PhD in uh, New Testament and Christian origins. And so then you, you got through there. What did you, uh, you do your dissertation on while you were there? I did my dissertation on a second century figure, called Melito, 
who allegedly is from Sardis. Mm -hmm. And he wrote, uh, among other things, he wrote a Passover homily. And I looked at the Old Testament quotations. It's a Greek text, but I looked at the the Old Testament quotations, Septuagint quotations in the uh, homily and looked at textual variants to see if maybe there might be discernible patterns on how the Septuagint was preserved in the church. Are, are you asleep yet? I bet half your listeners are. <laughs> Not at all. Keep going. Uh, yeah, pretty bad. But um, I learned a lot of skills that way in terms of text criticism what I and, and also the social world of first and second century uh, Jewish Christian relations, which mm-hmm. has continued to be of interest to me. I didn't do much with the theology of Melito. Uh, more recently, I, I did publish an article on Melito's um, theology and the intertextuality from a theological standpoint. But the dissertation itself is much more um, looking at the social history and at uh, text criticism. I feel like it's just like a Melito scholar to say, purportedly from Sardis. Uh, well, yeah. See, that was my big thing. Right? You have to have a big thing. I think, I think there was a Melito of Sardis. I just don't think that Melito of Sardis is the Melito that wrote the uh, uh, the homily. And uh, fortunately, I've not had to earn my living based on that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that opinion, as uh, it hasn't been picked up uh, by a broad. Yeah, that is a minority opinion, but I feel like it is a thing that has to be brought up when you're talking about it, right? It, it is. Yeah, that's right. That's my contribution for scholar to scholarship. <laughs> well, so you said you grew up in a Methodist church, and then I guess uh, now you're a part of the UMC again, although I know you're not you know, actively involved in the general conventions and whatnot, but you are a, a conservative Christian in the Methodist world. So what are some of your just your thoughts on that, your concerns, your hopes, sort of why you remain there, even though maybe not theologically always on point with, with that denomination or that group? Right, yeah. Well, I think the uh, I, I'm more Wesleyan than I am Reformed, just broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, it feels you know like a good fit to be in the United Methodist Church. Um, I have always appreciated um, the, the church's emphasis on uh, focus on the poor, was something Wesley was very committed to and holy living, which is not to say, of course, that other denominations or those <laughs> more <laughs> form persuasion are not, but it, it's forefronted in the in the Methodist Church and in Wesleyan holiness kinds of approaches that uh, I have I've just been drawn to and, and appreciate. The United Methodist Church in um, at least in the Chicagoland area where I was for about eighteen years. Um, uh, has a uh, has a racial diversity that I find very appealing. So, two of the three senior pastors that were are at our church during the decade or more that we participated were African Americans. Mm. One was a woman and and one a man, and I I really appreciated having that uh, perspective. Um, at least in in our uh, local United Methodist Church was always from scripture that uh, the that our sermons were drawn from. So I really appreciated that emphasis on the biblical text. And the uh, Methodists have a liturgy, a kind of a light uh, liturgy, but we still would, you know, work through the biblical text and read the biblical text each um each Sunday, and I really appreciated that kind of rhythm. And then I, you know, I love hymns, 
And boy, Wesley, the, the, the United Methodist tradition and its hymnal is, uh, I think, uh, just fantastic. So I really appreciated that aspect of things. The church um, has been, uh, in, over the last number of years, um, debating the issue of marriage as whether to hold to the traditional marriage. And uh, I, I'm glad that it has not changed its position but remains uh, committed to traditional marriage. Uh, second issue for me that was really important is that the United Methodist Church did not uh, participate in the um, boycott and divestment uh, of Israel movement mm. that some other uh, churches did. Um, I don't feel that that would be a good way to engage uh, with the nation of Israel or with uh, my fellow Jews. Um, and so those would be two big issues nationally that um, I that I like about the United Methodist Church. And then finally, internationally, it's it's a vibrant international community. And I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters around the world who are United Methodists who contribute to the life of the church. So those would be reasons why I've very much appreciated being part of the uh, UMC. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the, the Wesleyan hymnal. So I started out I was saved in a Southern Baptist church, but really was discipled and became a pastor in a Methodist church in the Congregational Methodist denomination down in the South, very small conservative Methodist group. And uh, I had got my first youth pastor job in that in that church and had really uh, loved it and was discipled by a man there who, who co-officiated our wedding, who's a Methodist pastor. And I ended up actually going back to the Baptist church just because I kind of theologically and ecclesiologically had worked my way back there. It wasn't like I had any root, you know, I got saved in Southern Baptist church and didn't have a clue what I was doing other than that was the church I happened <laughs> to be at, you know. Uh, yeah. But I always, I've told my Baptist friends many times, and I think it's objectively true that the Wesleyan hymnal is significantly better than the Baptist hymnal. <laughs> oh, yeah. There I are mean, crossovers, but. And move on, right? Yeah. yeah. No, no debate. We can debate a lot of things, Brandon. We don't agree on absolutely everything, but it's so nice to agree on essentials. Like, <laughs> like the Wesleyan hymnal. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about you just being, being a, a female scholar in evangelicalism. So. I know the one thing I'm not going to ask you is what's it like to be a woman? Because <laughs> it's not as though you wake up every day and that's the first thing you think about, or that's the only thing you think about all day. Right. Probably <laughs> men think about you being a woman more than you probably think about being a woman sometimes. I think that's probably true. Yes. At least that's my sense of things sometimes when I'm talking with my male colleagues. Yes. Yeah. So, so what is it just, what's some kind of general, here's what it's like. Here are some of the, here, here's maybe a good story of, of how it's gone well as somebody's handled it well, um, versus here's a couple of really bad stories or bad examples, aside from the one you gave earlier, of sort of what to do and what not to do when interacting with a female scholar if you're a man, especially, you know, on faculty together in the church at ETS. ETS is is notoriously kind of a, fu a funny, interesting place for women to be. So what are just some general kind of good and bad tips on how to handle and not handle things? Well, I think you put your finger on it uh, earlier in your comments, and that is that if if you're really conscious uh, as a man that you're talking to a woman, that front loads everything. That that's going to shape the conversation in a particular way. But if instead you think, oh, I'm talking to someone who shares my love of the New Testament, yeah. or who shares my interest in Methodist hymnals, or whatever it is, and you and you shift to a topic, then I think that that's just freeing right then then the it's um 
Yeah. So I would say that I don't mind if I'm engaged in a conversation and the the man that I'm talking with is in strong disagreement with my opinions. In fact, I consider it a real compliment that they're taking my opinion seriously yeah. and are engaging it. Right. So I think that's um, the thinking about the issue rather than the fact that it's that it's coming from a female brain through a female mouth, you know, uh, might be one good tip, you know, to kind of just start the conversation, uh, conversation going. I think that's, uh, that would be very helpful. Interestingly, uh, there've been some, uh, times you mentioned ETS. I did a panel discussion a couple of years ago, uh, on a, uh, a book and the panelists were all talking to each other, through email. And maybe your listeners are aware, I don't know, that my first name, Lynn, is spelled without an E. My parents didn't want me to ever be called Linny, mm-hmm. so they spelled it like a man's name is also spelled without the E. So when the time came for us to do our panel discussion, I show up and I speak to the moderator, hello. And I, he kind of looked at me like a second glance, but I didn't really think of it that much. And we finished the whole meeting And really, ETS is over, and I get an email um, the next day or whatever, and (laughs) and he apologizes for the fact that he didn't know I was female the whole time that we were emailing. He didn't know, Mm -hmm. and he said, "I'm really sorry if I said anything in the emails that might have been offensive," and he didn't at all. Um, You know, he would just say, "Hey guys," and since I think guys can be a generic term, I didn't I didn't think about it at all, but. What so and and I came away from that um, interaction thinking two things. First of all, wow, that's a wonderful compliment that he thought I was just one of the one of the guys. And then I thought my second thought was, isn't it sad that I should be happy that I was seen as one of the guys? Because mm-hmm. that means that the norm or the goal is. Uh, or what's normalized is uh, the male um, standard, whatever that, you know, the idea of, well, they're more rational or this or that. Um, and so, but, but my interaction on, on this, with this group of ETS men was, you know, I, you couldn't tell that I was a woman. You couldn't tell by my email, by my uh, questions that I asked, by anything, you know, you just thought you were talking to one of your male colleagues, you know, that, you know, live down the aisle, you know, the, of the school from you, uh, from your office or whatever. So I wonder how many men have a kind of similar experience when they, they come away from talking with a female colleague or, uh, someone, uh, at, at church, a woman at church, and they just maybe think, wow, that, that just sounded like regular, (laughs) you know, it wasn't (laughs) so highly gendered. I'd love to move away from the highly gendered. Yeah, I, uh, I actually, I'll admit I caught myself doing this last week. I was talking to somebody um, about talking to you, and they were like, oh, I you know, I don't know who Lynn Kowick is. And I said, oh, Lynn is one of the best female, New Te- Lynn is one of the best New Testament scholars in the world. And I caught myself qualifying saying one of the best female, when in reality, I believe that you are one of the best New Testament scholars in the world. But even then, as I'm trying to be aware of this stuff and trying to be careful and had just had a conversation with you not long before that about this topic, 
I still caught myself having to stop and say, no, 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 not one of the best female, just one of the best New Testament scholars. That's the thing that we just have to be careful of, I think, as men, is that we say, you know, she is smart for a blank. You know, I've heard people say, she's pretty for a black woman, oh, my goodness. you know, or she's smart for a woman or whatever. And it's, it's kind of like, can we just say, and I understand that we've just been so enculturated with it in so many ways, but, you know, can we just say they are a great scholar, they are a, an attractive person, they are a nice person, you know, whatever, they're a smart person, and not have to get you know, the next level down. That's right. And, and you know, I have to, to say, I think that is uh, changing. I'm really encouraged. So I was greatly encouraged to get the email from the, the moderator of that panel. Uh, is he, he really wanted to make sure that, that, that there hadn't been any inadvertent insults or anything like that. I really appreciate that. There yeah. was another <laughs> time when I was on a, a Southern Baptist campus and I was actually one of the invited speakers. Uh, it was a small uh, conference, and uh, a, a scholar who I recognized because of his um, stellar reputation came up. I was we were in a smaller room, um, you know, not like a giant auditorium. There were only men in the in the room, and um, and he <laughs> he asked. He said, "So, so what are you doing here?" In in a very nice way, but I think mm. sort of like. You just, I, I was so out of place, right? <laughs> I said, well, I'm one of the the people speaking today. Oh, he, he felt so bad. Yeah, right. So bad. Uh, and, you know, I think, okay, you know, um, as someone who is um, not, maybe I would say like a trailblazer or, you know, I, it, there aren't as many uh, women my age who are, are in uh, biblical studies. So I've been in a situation where I'm, I'm the only woman there, and and he would not have had a lot of female colleagues, none actually. Right. That it wasn't a, a bad question, and I was really touched that he felt so badly um, about his assumptions. I but guess be, being aware is the first problem, right? I mean, the first step, right, is is knowing that you have a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that he just he made a set of assumptions. Um, yeah, so there though I look at those situations and I think, you know what, that's, it's totally fine. When some, I certainly make mistakes and social faux pas, nobody is perfect on those things. And I, I really appreciate when uh, the my male colleagues, if they feel they've uh, done a misstep in any way, just apologize and great, we just move on. I think uh, one of the, um, but one of the things that women, I think often feel in the uh, churches and in the like the ETS world uh, is a sense that they don't belong. And I have a little bit sadder of a story where I was at this conference again, the only woman speaking, and uh, there had been a bit of a mix-up on schedule, but they changed at the last minute. They were going to have a panel of all of the uh, speakers, those that were uh, one that was the keynote, and then all of the speakers doing the breakouts. And I think there were like three or of us or so with that. So all the men were going to be on this panel and not me, even though I was one of the breakout people. So I, I just went over to the person organizing it and I, uh, privately and just said, you know, for sure I'm, I'm staying here. I'll do the breakout sec session and all that. But I just want you to know it's humiliating to me that I'm not uh, considered, you know, to be uh, one on the panel. He said, oh, I'm so sorry. That's an oversight. We'll definitely get you on there. Okay, great. So then uh, when they're miking us as uh, individuals uh, to get on the stage, uh, they get through that. And then one of the sound men says to me, 
um, yeah, it was like in, in miking you, it was like, uh, you know, that Sesame street song, you know how it goes. One of these things is not like the other. I know. Do you know what the next line is? One of these things just doesn't belong. Yeah. And I, I was, I just thought, wow, this is that, that was a very hard conference to go through the whole way. I felt so, uh, felt so stupid, felt very, um, very much inferior. There's a little bit of mansplaining going on in the, <laughs> in the panel yeah. discussion. And it, it, that was hard. That, that was not a pleasant experience. Fortunately, those are less uh, frequent than the good experiences where there's just might be a little bit of a mess up. But I think that whole, one of these things just doesn't belong. If that's the attitude that a that a group has, whether it's in the church or in a professional conference or something like that, that can be communicated in a lot of different implicit ways. And that becomes um, a real difficulty, I think, for a women. I mean, it would be true, I think, for racial minorities as well. Um, yeah, we, uh, you know, in our, in our church, um, we basically asked like, hey, you know, how can we do better as pastors, as leaders in our church? And, you know, we would, you know, we would disagree with other churches on whether or not women can be elders or pastors or not, um, or whether or not women can preach, but there's still the, we're still trying to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we handle all this kind of stuff? And one of the, one of the things that one of the women in our church told us that was really helpful was she said, you know, I think this church does a great job. I don't disagree theologically with where you guys are at. I'm not trying to preach, not trying to be a pastor. I think you guys do a great job. I think you do a good job including women in leadership decisions. I think you do a good job including women in the liturgy, and et cetera, et cetera. It's very complimentary. But then she said, but you just need to understand that even though you guys are, are doing a good job, it's still for me as a woman growing up in the church, even though I feel like I have an open door, I still don't really feel like I have an open door because I've been so uh, conditioned to believe that my opinion doesn't really matter or that I just need to go do kids ministry and that's the extent of my ministry here. And so that was really helpful for us to think, okay, we when we think we're doing well, we're still not really that far down the road. In, in our minds, we have more female representation than most churches like us, most churches like us in our city for sure. Uh, we have more minority representation, et cetera, et cetera. And we try to be really intentional about that. But even just hearing her say, you can do all of that, and I'm thankful that you're doing all of that, but you just need to understand that regardless of how well those things go, there's still going to be a part of me that's always going to be, because of the way I was raised and, and the way I grew up in the church, there's always going to be a part of me that thinks I don't really belong or I don't really deserve to be heard or whatever. So I say all that to say, whether or not you are a complementarian or egalitarian, whether or not you agree or disagree on some of these issues— what are some ways that churches can help fight against, you know, sort of what she talked about? And how? what are some ways that regardless of where you're at on this, you can move forward helping raise up women in the church, raise up women in scholarship? Any any advice that you have there just, just for anybody who's listening? Because I think there are a lot of complementarian people who I know, who I'm friends with, who want to do a lot better and want to move, you know, significantly further down the road than they have or the churches that they're a part of. So there are a lot of people who are willing to do it, even if we may disagree on on some of the ends of it. So what is some advice you could give on that? Sure, sure. Well, a, a couple of things. Um, uh, I think uh, sometimes uh, churches who conclude that women uh, will not be able to, uh, the, the pulpit is not open for women to preach, um, their hermeneutics are very sexist. So that's not all for sure. But I think you have to be careful that you don't answer the question of, well, why did God say 
that women can't teach men. It must be because women are more naturally gullible. Hmm. You know, that used to be said. You can look even in the 1980s, there were um, conservative um, commentaries, biblical commentaries that would say that. So that to me goes beyond the evidence in scripture, right? When we tried, if we conclude that Paul is prohibiting women from teaching men, a la uh, 1 Tim 2, and we do so because we have decided that women are in some way, they have a, by their very gender, by their sex, they have a flaw that is, uh, you know, a literal flaw. They're more gullible. Yeah. They're uh, ir- more. They're, they're irrational. They're more emotional. Whatever, whatever it is, over against the norm, which is male, then then I think we have to own that that that's um, going beyond the biblical evidence. And I don't think anybody in the evangelical world wants to do that. We want to stay with Scripture. So I think our hermeneutics have to be very careful when when we make our conclusions. Secondly, I would say that uh, just sometimes we use language like, well, a woman can't preach in in our church. And um, sometimes all that women hear is a woman can't preach, which, of course, isn't actually true. There are uh, it's it's a debatable issue amongst evangelicals, whether women have the capacity to actually do it. So I think instead of instead, maybe it's more accurate to say we've determined that in our church polity, women, uh, we, we will not have women give sermons. That's a little different than saying women can't preach. Mm-hmm. It, does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. So I think our language being uh, a little bit clearer and more precise about what we're actually saying, because the Saying women can't do something, I think, is what the your friend at church was trying to get at. Was um, it, it feels like a blanket uh, condemnation or limitation based on my uh, gender? Now, if you said, if I, uh, I'm trying to think, if you know, if we two of us were on a basketball court, and you said, you know, women can't dunk. Uh, certainly the women on the basketball court (laughs) right now can't dunk. I'd be like, yeah, I mean, there'd be certain physical limitations that I would have that you could make kind of a blanket statement. And you could do the same for men vis-a-vis women. Um, But when you're talking about capacities, abilities, then you have to be a little bit more careful on on how you're uh, defining things. So those would be a couple of ways, I think, uh, and then a third, I think, would be, and, and along those lines, would be to, um, if you're going to encourage women in, let's say, like in scholarship, uh, bro- broadly speaking, um, then to just try and be real consistent with sending that message to both women and, and men, to the young women and the young men. Oftentimes, it's not the church leaders that have the loudest voice in a young woman's life, it's her peers. And we certainly see this in uh, college and seminary where it's the young woman's uh, male peers who greatly discourage her from pursuing um, her her giftedness in the, uh, in the classroom and beyond. Um, so I think it's as much, it's not really a woman's issue per se. It's, it's really a man's issue <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, in, um, uh, 
because so often men define themselves as over against women and and masculinity is everything that's not femininity. So we have this kind of polar opposite sort of thing. And anyway, so I think that it, it, it really is helpful to encourage young women, but I think as much effort needs to be made towards young men to help them feel very comfortable having, uh, or seeing women as peers um, and even seeing women as their boss, because if they go into the business world, often middle management is populated by women. And so one of the, you know, young men right out of college, it's very likely they'll have a female boss. And so I think just helping uh, both young men and young women think, um, think not in opposites, but more as uh, team players would be very helpful. Yeah, not seeing your uh, women classmates as potentially a future wife, but as a co-laborer in the gospel instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I still recall this. I was teaching uh, a... Uh, senior seminar a couple of years ago uh, at my undergrad institution, and there were about 75% of the students were male, 25% female. And one of the women came from a uh, church that did not um, ordain uh, women to the ministry. Um, and she was hoping to go on for um, uh, uh, work at a, a seminary. I'm not sure if she was going for her MDiv because eventually she wanted to get her PhD. So she was going to uh, an academic sort of um, uh, um, seminary and uh, and she was clearly the smartest student in the class. Like everybody knew that. Mm -hmm. She was such a gentle, sweet soul and also just flat out brilliant. So everybody, And everybody knew that. So she, when we're talking about what we're going to do after graduation and she mentions, you know, I don't know that I can go on to seminary because although I got into a very prestigious seminary, nevertheless, I don't have a letter of recommendation from a church. And I looked around the room and some of the uh, young men, they I could just see the wheels turning in their head. They were from a denomination similar to hers. They had been very comfortable with women not, uh, not being ordained. They Theologically, they were totally fine with that. But I don't think they ever thought about the fact that one of their own classmates who they valued very highly wouldn't be able to go to seminary yeah. because of that position. Um, and that I think personalized their theology in a way that made them a bit uncomfortable, you know, sort of like, okay, here's one of the outworkings of a position I hold. Am I comfortable with that particular outworking of it? Not that I have to change my whole position, but does it have ramifications that that maybe I hadn't considered and maybe I, that I'm not comfortable with? Yeah, and this is this is a lot of reason why I wanted to have you on for this conversation is I think part of complementarianism, I think, where the issue is, regardless, again, of where you agree or disagree on certain things, is that complementarians, we can tend to see it as black and white and we're so scared that we're going to get into the gray or that we might step over the line that we go extreme the other way where women aren't allowed to be on stage, women can't lead a song, women can't do a scripture reading, women can't lead a prayer, women can't teach, you know, maybe a mixed group or lead a community group. And, you know, again, there's 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 room for debate on on how that all goes. I think, you know, ecclesiologically that can change. Like I have a friend in Australia who's a complementarian. He's at a church with a woman who's a senior pastor. And I said, hey, you know, talk me through that. And he said, well, I mean, and we're Anglican, so we have all male bishops. So she's under the authority of the male bishop. So it doesn't bother me at all. But in a different ecclesiology, you know, a woman preaching is going to be different based on the ecclesiology and the context. Uh, but I think we do tend to so 
exaggerate, especially American evangelicals, so exaggerate one way because we're so scared that we let fear end up holding down women way further than even our own position would allow us to biblically, kind of what you were saying about let's go back to the text. And we take it out to the extreme, and we don't, not only do we not think through, okay, what are the what are the strict things that we think Scripture is teaching versus where are the gray areas? And we have to acknowledge at some point that the gray area is way bigger than we think it is. Uh, but we also just, you know, we we don't have friends and women who are going to seminary and who are in the ministry who can help us think through it. So I'm thankful that you are, you know, able to come on here and hopefully help some people think through it, even if we we may disagree on some of the conclusions. Uh, but you you've done a lot of work. Go ahead. Were you going to say something? No, I was just going to say there was one uh, time. This is kind of a funny story in a way. Uh, one of my former students uh, was a pastor of a church that was uh, a complementarian church. And they, the uh, elders, all male, were um, thinking through the issue of complementarian and egalitarian and, and church polity and all of that and invited me to uh, come and talk with them about my, um, my thoughts. And so I, I was sitting uh, with them and uh, they, they began talking. Also, yeah, so one, one uh, person who was sitting across the table from me, one guy, um, said something about he felt that holding an egalitarian position was uh, wrong. And then the uh, man sitting next to me said, so do you mean wrong? Like if you are an egalitarian, you're sinful. And so then the other fellow, the two of them started talking just <laughs> to each other. And the one guy said, yes, I think it is totally sinful. And, <laughs> and I remember sitting there thinking, okay, first of all, guys, I can actually hear you. <laughs> and secondly, I'm, I'm the sinful woman. <laughs> right. I, thought of myself ever uh that way um and but yeah but if you had not uh, been there i wouldn't have sparked the conversation not, but, right but so. I, what's that i said if you had not been there i wouldn't have sparked the conversation right so <laughs> at least that was part exactly, of exactly yes but i just thought how to your point about how we can uh move into abstractions very quickly and in this case and in in, in the case that i just mentioned to you uh it wasn't an abstraction when they were talking about something being sinful I I was sitting right there yeah. and so was being implicitly accused of being a sinful woman. Yeah. I think that that um that really raises the stakes or it raises the temperature in the discussion. It'd be nicer not to to go that <laughs> that route. I don't think that really moves us forward at all. Well, there's another tip for things not to say yeah, when yeah. a woman's in the room. There you go. Okay. So for, for, uh, you've been doing a lot of work. I mean, you talked about, um, some of your, some of your early work and how you've always been sort of interested in this, but you know, about 10 years ago, you published, um, women in the world of the earliest Christians. Uh, you recently published with Amy Hughes, uh, Christian women in the patristic world. And so you've done, you know, a decade of publishing and more on sort of the topic of women in the early church. So just kind of as a final question here as we close, what are some what are some things that you would say, you know, the church today can learn from the early church and patristic world? I think we tend to look at it and think, okay, all men were bishops, all men had the authority, all men had the power. It's very, you know, patriarchal, with, you know, and patriarchal is probably too charge of a word now, but sort of a very male-dominated world. And I think you've done a good job to show, okay, Maybe so in some sense, but there was also a lot of power that women had. There was informal power. There was theological discussion. There were a lot of ways that women were still involved. So what are some of the things we can learn uh, from the early church, from people like Perpetua and Melania the Younger and some of those? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think the um, part of uh, you're right that if we start with bishops, we're going to get a very male dominated picture of the church. 
Um, but that would only be one slice of the church. If we only do creeds, we get a very abstract, it's an important aspect, but a kind of abstract picture of the church. If we look at liturgy, however, if we look at uh, the veneration of the saints, the uh, martyrs like Perpetua, and how they so strongly influence the daily piety of Christians a around the Mediterranean, then we get a slightly different picture. And I think the uh, what, what I found and what Amy and I found uh, was that the women served as models of discipleship, not just for women, but for men. And I feel like today that's been lost. And so if we're, we're uh, taping this right before uh, Christmas. Let me just mention Mary, because uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is going to be mentioned a lot come Advent, rightly so. Um, but often those aspects of her life that are mentioned are kind of not repeatable. Virgin mother, pretty much a one-off, you know? <laughs> and then, um, and also that now we, we often will describe her as uh, an unfortunate teenage pregnancy kind of, kind of thing, which I don't think accurately pulls out all the information or is culturally um, sensitive to really what was going on. But, but think again, how you marginalize then Mary, if you describe her as a teenage uh, pregnancy, unwed mother, no one wants to be that. I, I don't know of any little girl who grows up and says, yeah, I want to be an unwed mother. <laughs> so you know what I'm saying? Like we've, we've taken Mary out of the picture of being a disciple. When, when you look at the number, and she's not mentioned a lot, but when you look at how she's mentioned in John and in Mark, I mean, she's, um, and, and also in Luke with her Magnificat, she's very prophetic in, in her voice there. Yeah. Um, and, and she ponders, right? She thinks about what God is doing. And at times she's very faithful, like when Jesus changes the water to wine, uh, she She's very faithful, trusting, go, you know, listen to him. And then you see in Mark where she's uh, kind of doubting as his ministry gets more popular and thus more contested, she gets worried. She wants to bring him home. She doesn't, uh, she don't want to lose him. And she can imagine where this might go, where it ends up going. Um, but both in John and in Mark, Jesus redefines who she is. She, he wants her to think of herself as a disciple, not just as, well, that's my mom. And she's a disciple. And then, you know, there she is at the foot of the cross. Jesus isn't abandoned when, when he dies on the cross. There are some women there and mm -hmm. also uh, John, the disciple. Uh, and But especially there are women there who uh, st stand up against the shame and the possible harassment that they would have experienced. They stood by Jesus. And he again identifies her as a disciple. She, through her life and the ups and downs and in the confusion and all of that, time and again, she's seen as pondering what, uh, what's going on, what God is doing in his work in the Messiah. And then she's, I think, the only person that was both present at the birth of the Savior and the birth of the church because mm. she's there at Pentecost. Yeah. How amazing is that? Now, I think uh, that would warrant uh, study. And I think both men and women could say, I'd like to be like Mary. 
I would love for uh, more men today to feel comfortable, as many men did in the ancient world, of seeing women, at, uh, biblical women, as um, models of discipleship, even as the men, um, men in the New Testament, some of the men in the New Testament are also held up as uh, models for discipleship. And I think when that uh, happens, and women, of course, do this all the time, where we are told, well, you know, be like Peter right, or be right. like Paul, whatever, but not too many are said, be like Mary or, um, you know, one, because we don't know that, uh, you know, be like Yodia, uh, be like um, Phoebe. I, I don't know. I mean, there's be like Lydia, open your home, you know, and be yeah. hospitable. That, I think, would be one takeaway, I would say, from my work um, uh, in women in the early church and also uh, the earliest Christian women, that um, they, the early church saw them as disciples. I wish we would do the same today. Well, that is a great way to end the conversation. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. It was helpful to me, and I hope that it's helpful to others. And I appreciate your, your candor and your voice and your thoughtfulness on all this. No, thank you, Brandon. Thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed chatting with you. 